episode two. Welcome back, friends. Thank you for listening again today. This is the Bible FAQ with Kirk Van Podcast, the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. And I do strive to answer questions uh, that are submitted to me from other people. Uh, This isn't a setup of me just picking random questions, uh, but I intend to answer the questions that are given to me by others. So to that end, uh, please uh, send in your own questions that you would like to have answered on this podcast. You can do so by going to the website, kirkvan.com, and uh, there's options on the website for submitting your question. You can use email, question, at kirkvan.com, or you can also do so through our Facebook page. Uh, and the Facebook page is facebook.com slash BibleFAQ with Kirk Van. And while you're there on the Facebook page, please do like and follow us. Uh, If you are willing to do so, it would be great if you can share with some friends. And uh, we really would like uh, to get the word out about uh, this resource online, Bible FAQ. And so without further ado, I'd like to get right into some more questions for today. And the first question that I'm going to address uh, does come from a Facebook user. Uh, This Facebook user is Gilbert. And I don't know where Gilbert's from because he didn't share that information. Uh, But uh, here's the question uh, that we'll start off with today. Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we must deny ourselves. What did he mean by this? The scripture citation is Matthew 16 and 24. Well, first, this is a great question uh, because a misunderstanding uh, of this has resulted in a lot of bad theology and destructive application of that bad theology throughout, uh, throughout the centuries. And so uh, Gilbert cited here Matthew 16 and 24. Uh, there's also parallels in the other Gospels. Uh, there's Mark 8 has this same uh, quotation inst- instance, uh, and Luke 9 does as well. And so let's read that verse scripture. We'll go ahead and read the instance out of Matthew uh, that Gilbert has cited here. So Matthew 16 and 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this, of course, is the well-known three-part directive, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Well, first, let's start by defining the terms here. Uh, The strong concordance uh, for the Greek word here just defines this word as to deny utterly or to disown. Uh, So from a literal sense, it actually means to disown. Uh, Another uh, Bible tool resource I use, a Greek lexicon, uh, it it, uh, provides uh, definitions for this term. Uh, a couple. One is to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone. And this is used in, in the Bible in reference to Peter's denial. When Peter denied the Lord, uh, that was the case. But then the other uh, d- definition we have here and the other usage here in the New Testament is to forget oneself, to lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. 
And it seems to me that that is the sense in which Jesus is using uh, the term uh, here in Matthew 16, 24 and its parallels. So it seems that it is used in somewhat of a hyperbolic sense uh, in these cases. And hyperbole is simply a figure of speech that's exaggerated somewhat for effect and not to be taken extremely literally. So there appears also to be an important cross-reference from another account instance that it's helpful to, to uh, draw upon uh, for our explanation here. And so often in Scripture when we see uh, kind of the same statements made, uh, it's often just parallels of the same thing in the, different, uh, the same instance. But in some cases we see that Jesus taught on t some topics and used the same words or close to the same words more than one time. So it's not just another parallel of the same instance of Jesus teaching, but it's actually another time that Jesus was teaching, uh, that he, he was teaching on the same topic and using the same words or close to the same words. And this is the case uh, for this particular teaching because the parallel for Matthew 16 would be Luke 9, but also we find in Luke 14. So twice in the same gospel, Jesus teaches on the same topic. But this time, he substitutes the, the first part of that three-part directive uh, with some slightly different words. And these words give us Jesus' own description of what it means to deny oneself. So let me just read it for you. Luke 16, excuse me, Luke 14, verse 26 and 27. If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here in the latter part of those verses, we have him say to bear your cross, tape up your cross, and come after me or follow me. So that first part uh, seems to be replacing the words, uh, uh, deny one yourself uh, with this explanation of kind of what it means to deny yourself. So he's teaching the same thing. Well, how do we interpret this? After all, the Bible is replete with teachings to honor your parents and to be obedient to your parents. And so uh, Jesus certainly isn't going against that teaching. Uh, he's not contradicting that te teaching. So what we have here, again, is a bit of hyperbole. Um, in other words, this is a matter of degrees or priorities or comparison. So what Jesus is saying is in comparison to your, uh, your service of me, in comparison to your love of me, uh, by that comparison or to that degree, uh, any other acquaintances or relationship that you have uh, could be in a hyperbolic sense uh, described as hating uh, your father and mother and children and sisters in life also. And... Um, and so I think we need to interpret like that because it's the only thing that makes sense in this. Uh, so it's a matter of degrees or comparison. So to answer the specific question, what does it mean to deny oneself? Well, as we already said, to lose sight of one's self-interest in favor of God's interest. Or if I could just kind of unpack this in my own terms a little bit, to give up your own rights, to give up your own prerogatives in order to yield control completely to the Lord and to his will. In other words, we set aside our own plans, we set aside our own agenda, we set aside our own ambitions uh, to a large extent, to a large degree. That doesn't mean completely. You don't have to, you know, not work and not have a job and do and not have a home in order to follow Jesus. 
but they have to shrink in comparison. Uh, they have to, in a hyperbolic sense, uh, be nothing to us in comparison uh, to the love that we have for God and our plan and our order to follow his will and his plan uh, for our life. And sometimes, in some cases, it's helpful to consider alternative translations or paraphrase. So let me give you some of the more descriptive paraphrases here we find of this same verse uh, in Matthew, uh, from Matthew uh, 16 and 24. Uh, one translation says, to give up all in place of deny oneself or deny yourself. Another says, forget about yourself. Yet another says, you must stop thinking about yourself and what you want. Another says, say no to the things that you want. And all those kind of describe the same thing I was talking about. And, you know, there's this Bible called the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase. Uh, it's a useful tool from comparison. It's not a literal translation. It often takes too many creative liberties. Uh, but it's a unique, uh, a unique rendering here that I'll share. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Uh, the Message Bible says, Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. Well, of course, we know Jesus didn't use those exact words, but that's a pretty good explanation of, I think, getting at the intent, intent and the meaning of uh, what Jesus was describing and the message that he was portraying at that time. And in the same vein of denying yourself, uh, this idea that, this, that's, that we're expressing here, uh, this, uh, this principle uh, that is conveyed in these parallel passages, it's congruent with the larger biblical theme of self-denial in terms of divesting and shedding ourselves from the earthly desires, from, from worldly comforts and attachment that tend to distract us uh, from yielding control to God. For example, in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus talked about seed that was sown among thorns, and then he described and uh, he embellished on that teaching and said that represents the, 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 uh, that seed being choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, cares of this world and riches uh, can cause us to stumble. They can distract us from yielding control to God and truly following after him and his plan and his will for our life. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in his second epistle to Timothy, uh, chapter number two, he talked about no man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. So he was using the metaphor here of the soldier and saying, if you're going to be a good soldier, of Jesus Christ, you can't afford uh, to entangle yourself with the, the affairs of this life, the things of this life, so that you can please him who has chosen you to be a soldier. So in that sense, self-sacrifice, self-denial uh, means separating ourselves from the influences, from the demands, from the attachments, the things of this life that would uh, compel us to, to stop following Jesus in the way we should, to stop yielding control to him in the way that we should. And so that gets at the heart of self, what self-denial means. Now, we must be careful here. And I said there's abuses throughout history of this idea. This idea of self-denial, it is not a complete a self self absolute renunciation 
or rejection of ourself in all aspects. The Bible does not teach asceticism, which is severe self-denial. It does not teach monasticism, a complete segregation of ourselves from society or anything like that. The Bible doesn't call us to, you know, whip ourselves and beat ourselves so that we can experience, you know, self-sacrifice and suffering. It doesn't call on us to, to live uh, like a hobo without a home or without a job or without responsibility so that we can be free to follow Jesus. None of those things. So we've got to be careful and various people throughout history uh, have pushed this to extreme limits that are unhelpful and actually go against uh, what is intended uh, in these scriptures. And so again, it's a matter of degrees. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of comparison. Yes, we have to have responsibilities in this life. Uh, yes, we have to do certain things uh, in order to care for ourselves and others, but we cannot allow anything, anything to detract us from our service to the Lord and following his will and his plan for our lives. The New Testament teaching on li liberty uh, of the believer holds that we are free uh, to enjoy certain things that are more morally neutral practices or activities. So we can even enjoy certain things in life. Uh, we don't have to totally self-sacrifice from anything that we like or find enjoyable. It's not that we can't have any hobbies or amusements or enjoyments. Uh, we're free to do that. And the Bible is replete with examples and declarations of that. Uh, but it must not ever come close to allowing anything to steal our focus away from serving God. So in summary, what does it need, mean to deny ourselves when we become his disciples, his followers, followers of Jesus? Well, it means we surrender our own self-interests, our own plans and our own ambitions for the sake of following the Lord's direction and pursuing his will. As Jesus said in Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. It means we forego the comfort, the ease, the security, Security, uh, that people instinctively seek in order to embrace hardship and challenges and even suffering for the sake of the gospel. It means we shed our attachments and our entanglements with the cares of this life and this world so that we can focus more appropriately and completely on the things of God. So Gilbert, thank you so much for the question submitted through Facebook. And uh, I enjoyed uh, uh, compiling an answer uh, to, to meet uh, the needs of your question. And so I want to move on to the next question, if we can. Uh, we'll try to get another one in here. And uh, let's go uh, looking at the different ones here. I had a question that I wanted to bring up, if I can find it here. Okay, here's, here's a question. And this question is... Um, so from Sophia in Muncie, Indiana. And again, if you know me, you know I go to church in Muncie. So Sophia is actually my niece, and she's 14 years old. And she actually sent me this question uh, before I even started working on this podcast. And, uh, and uh, she sent me this question via a Facebook message. She sent me a few questions uh, previously. But it's a great question, and I, I'm going to have fun answering it here. So the question is very short. Uh, I was going to say simple, but it's not simple, but it is short. It's simply this. Where did God come from? Where did God come from? And, uh, you know, some, some people say, oh, that some people might instinctively say, well, that's a silly question. It's not a silly question at all. It's, it's a deep question. It's a profound question. And it's a question I bet not a lot of people could answer just off the top of their heads with any 
uh, degree of, of I, I, any degree of intellectual prowess, I guess you could say. So in answer to this question, and, uh, you know, when we describe God and who he is, uh, and, and when we, in, in response to this question, really the only way we can define God from a biblical perspective is according to his attributes, according to his nature. And, of course, uh, you know, the Bible is replete with descriptions of the various attributes and character, uh, character and, and nature of God. But I'm going to mention three here because they, they address this question directly. Uh, first is the question uh, or the attribute of aseity. Aseity, that means self-existence. So it means to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining. In Exodus 3 and 14, uh, Moses asks, Whom shall I, shall I say sent me? And then uh, God replied, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he, and he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you unto me. So this I am expression is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, of self-existence, of the immediate presence of God. And so that testifies of his aseity. Uh, also in John 8 and 58, Jesus said unto them, so Jesus makes a statement, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus very clearly was identifying himself with the I am of the Old Testament. He was very clearly identifying himself as the one God of the universe manifest in flesh. And for this, they, they uh, thought he was um, blaspheming God and wanted to kill him. In Acts 17, uh, this is a beautiful uh, uh, part of Paul's preaching uh, when he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with man's hand, neither is worship with man's hands, as though he needed any, anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. So this is a description of God's aseity before. He doesn't need anything from anyone else. He's self-sufficient. Uh, no one makes it possible for God to exist, uh, but God makes it possible for everything else to exist. Uh, he, he is the Lord of heaven, and uh, he, he dwelleth not in temples made with man hand, but he gives life and breath to all things. And so uh, that is a testimony of his seity. And number two, the Bible testifies about God's eternity. And what we mean by that is his existence beyond time. The fact that God is eternal, has no beginning and no ending. In other words, he's free from all succession of time, past, present, and future, are constantly before him. Philosophers call this the eternal now. However, God can and does view events in time and act in time. And so this is related to the idea of God's infinity. Uh, to be infinite means to be immeasurable and unlimited in extent of space or duration of time or other things. So it's not that God uh, existed from an infinite number of days or years or, or minutes or however you want to measure it. It's that God is actually timeless. He exists outside of the construct of time. So you can't measure it. Uh, eternal doesn't even give the, the, the right meaning because we think of eternity uh, as just a passing of time. But God exists outside of all time. And so there's a few verses of scripture, Psalm 90 and 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever 
thou hast formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Psalm 93 and 2, thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. And a few more verses of scriptures we could go into, uh, but that's sufficient to uh, describe this powerful characteristic. In Romans uh, or excuse me, the third thing I want to uh, get into here. Uh, so we talked about God's aseity, God's eternity, and the Bible also testifies of God's transcendence. Now this is related to and linked to God's eternal, eternal nature or his, uh, his uh, infinity, if you will. And what, trans, what we mean by transcendence is God as existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. And that is a powerful definition of God. Again, he transcends space and time. Uh, he, he, he is not subject to its limitations because it's not beholden him. And of course, in the intelligent design creation worldview, uh, we understand that the universe itself was brought by God, and so he exists outside of it. He's external from it. He's not limited to the things uh, that make up the temporal universe. And of course, every verse about creation in the Bible, which is dozens and dozens, if not more, point to the transcendence of God. In order for God to create the universe, in order for God to create the world, he had to be outside of the universe and outside of the world and not subject to its limitations. And so, again, Acts 17 in that statement we read, uh, how that it is God uh, that is Lord of heaven and earth and how it is he that gives life and breath uh, to all things, uh, that speaks of his transcendence as well as uh, his eternity, if you will. And Jeremiah, uh, the prophet in chapter 23, verse 23 writes, I am God, I am, excuse me, let me start that over. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. So we often use this verse of scripture in, uh, in, in relation to God's omnipresence, uh, but it also shows God's transcendence. Uh, he's saying, you know, I'm not just a God that's close. I'm not imminent in creation, but I'm also a God that's afar off from our perspective. And that points to his transcendence and he's outside of the universe and that he fills the entire universe. Uh, and he can only do that if he exists outside of its physical uh, demands and limitations. And then Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Uh, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. So, in, again, speaking of many things, but one of those is the transcendence of God. He's before all things. Before anything existed, God existed. And, uh, and so these things taken together uh, point to a God that exists uh, beyond time. So the question, where, where does God come from? Uh, he comes from a realm that's beyond our existence, in some ways behind our comprehension. And he is just eternal always existed, but not just, even that description is insufficient because always existed implies a, a passing of time and a pack, passing of years. But God is timeless. 
He exists outside of the concept of time. And that's hard for us to imagine. Now, some people just say, oh, that's meaningless and nonsensical. It's unrealistic. You're just making up things to describe uh, this God. But philosophically, there must be a being or a force that is external and transcendent beyond space and time. It's necessary uh, in existence. Uh, and this is what philosophers call the uncaused cause or the prime mover. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. So there's something that causes that, and then there's something that causes that thing, and there's something that causes that thing. This could go on forever. There's got to be something at some point. Again, we're talking about in time, but there's got to be a transcendent, external, timeless entity that is the cause of all things that itself does not have a cause. And that is exactly uh, the theistic view of a God, a timeless, spaceless entity, uh, intelligent being with unlimited power. Uh, logic and reason dictate a transcendent cause. This is not just something that Christians come up with uh, to cover up for lack of an intellectual argument. Even the ancient philosophers recognized this and made the same case. So, Interestingly enough, and I'm going probably a bit beyond the scope of this question, but I think this is very important to substantiate the claims I'm making here. Science itself has provided us with incredible evidence that increases the probability for, number one, for the existence of God in the way that I just described him, and number two, for that God uh, being an intelligent designer or creator of the universe. And let me unpack this a little bit. Until the 20th century, the prevailing view of secular philosophers and scientists alike was that the universe was external. They said matter and energy have just always existed and the universe has just always existed. It never began to exist. Attributing those same attributes that I just attributed to God, they attributed those to the universe. And therefore they concluded it never began to exist. Therefore, there was no need for an external explanation such as God because the universe itself just always existed. Well, that worldview that was held uh, uh, popularly by many philosophers and scientists prior to the 20th century, it utterly was obliterated under the impact of Albert Einstein and his general theory of relativity and its applications to the questions of cosmology. So in a nutshell, what Einstein did was he theorized, theorized through his understanding of physics that the universe cannot be a static, timeless, eternal entity. He said it must be either a state in a state of collapse or expansion. And he didn't know which, but he says got to be one or the other since uh, and since that time, the prevailing view is one of expansion. Uh, but either way, Einstein theorized that the existence of the universe cannot be extrapolated to past infinity. In other words, the universe is not eternal is what he believed from his understanding of physics. Uh, the universe, indeed, space and time itself must have had a beginning at some point in the finite past. Well, not just a few decades later in the 20th century, astrophysicists provided observational evidence for these theoretical predictions of Einstein. And so now today, the prevailing view widespread among astrophysicists and cosmologists alike is that the universe is not infinite, 
but they would say that time and space and matter and matter and energy, uh, all the things that make up the universe are all finite and came into being at a certain point in time. And in fact, the theory of the Big Bang is one attempt to explain how that could have happened. Now, many scientists may not admit it, but the implications of this are undeniable. The existence of the universe itself requires an external transcendent cause of the universe. And that's the very definition of God as I just explained it. One that has a seity, one that has eternity, one that has affinity, one that is transcendent beyond the forces and, and, and the limitations of the universe. And so the question, where did God come from? Well, he didn't come from anything or anywhere. He's the uncaused cause, the prime mover. He exists beyond time. He's eternal. He is free from all succession of time from the past, present, and future are ever before him. He is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining. He exists apart from the material universe and is not subject to its limitations. For example, time and space. And... To put a fine point on it, this understanding is necessary for the reality of the universe. To deny this is to leave the universe without any cause whatsoever, which is untenable and defines reason. So the best uh, explanation for the existence of the universe, to use the cosmological argument for the existence of God, is God himself, a transistent, intelligent, uh, intelligent uh, uh, unembodied uh, force. And that is the very classical definition of God himself. Well, we got through two questions today. Once again, thank you so much uh, for joining me in this podcast and listening to it today. Uh, please check back. We're going to have a new podcast every week. And this week I'm introducing three podcasts uh, to get things rolling. So we should have another one here released in a couple days. So check back to KirkVan.com, our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. And thank you for liking and following and supporting uh, this ministry and podcast. And so until next time, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Farewell for now. <laughs>